Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can gather here this afternoon. I'm grateful for the many gatherings that happen throughout our city and around our country. May your word go forth, transforming hearts, transforming lives, reconciling marriages, healing hearts, healing brokenness. brokenness. God, would we, as we listen to what you have to say through the Bible, would it transform us? radically for your glory and for our joy. Amen. <coughs> Sin is the biggest problem you have and I have. It is the biggest problem around the world. It is our biggest problem. Sin. So what is sin? You can only have sin if you have some sort of standard to go by. So the Bible opens up right away in its first chapter in Genesis saying there's one God and He is good, He is loving, He is perfect. And anything contrary to that perfection, anything contrary to that love is sin. It is a rebellion against God. These are crimes against a pure, loving, good God. And this is our problem. This is the problem that we see all around us. All the problems of the universe. Every physical problem, every spiritual problem, every moral problem, every social problem, every economic problem, every political problem, have their origins in the events that we're going to talk about in Genesis chapter 3. There's a Christian scholar and he defines sin this way. Sin is any lack of conformity to the moral character of God or the law of God. We sin by thinking evil, speaking evil, acting evil, or omitting good. Sin is a rebellion against a perfect God. We have sin in our own lives. And if any of us were to deny that, imagine for one second, if you could project your mind on an audio clip, on a podcast or something. Every thought, 24-7, that you have, you can play it on a podcast. So you can look up Harrison's thoughts and listen to it 24-7. You'd be a genius if you listen to that podcast. I'm telling you. But imagine if your thoughts were on a podcast. I'm sure, I am sure, you would be embarrassed. You would be ashamed. You would ridicule yourself. You would hide in a hole. Imagine if your life was filmed for 24-7 and there's a YouTube channel that you can watch. Harrison's Life, you can watch it 24-7. It'd be an amazing show, by the way. If any movie producers are here, I'm ready. I just need a haircut. I'm the next, I'm the next big star. But if, if our lives were on a video, you can watch it 24-7. Would, would you be okay showing your spouse would you be okay showing your friends that video? Sin has ravaged our lives. It's in our hearts. It's not, sin is not just something that we do. Sin is not just something wrong that we've done. Sin 
the Bible says it's not just an action that not only we have done something wrong, have we done something wrong, but that we are something wrong. That we are not born good. That we are born evil. And every secular book and philosophy wants to tell you otherwise. You're good. You are good. You were born good. You were born a blank slate. You're an angel. And everything that's wrong with you is from outside of you. You're a victim. We have a victim culture. And some of us are victims of, of others' sin that you did not deserve, you did not ask for. It was not right what happened to you. But the, the sin in this world, the evil in this world, comes from our hearts. It comes from us. And someone said of, of sin, there's a writer, a Christian writer, he says, sin takes you where you don't want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you more than you want to pay. Maybe it's a bottle Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's fame and fortune. Whatever our vices, it takes you where you don't want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you more than you want to pay. There's our own sin. There's the sins of those around us. I was reading the Bureau of Statistics the other day. And the Yukon has the highest homicide. Yukon has the highest murder rate in the country for the second year in a row. Since 1973, there have been over 30 million abortions. So to be, be, clear, to be clear in our stance about abortion, we believe life begins at the moment of conception. That is, that is life. Not only does scripture say that, if you look at embryologists, so those who study the embryos of of the human body, they say, scientists, non-Christian scientists say, the embryo at the moment of conception is a distinct human being. So when I say abortion, I'm talking about there have been 30 million murders of babies since 1973. You want to look at the sins around you? Just read the news if you can stomach it. Turn on the radio. It is a bleak picture. It is a bleak picture, but it wasn't always like that. In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God made this perfect world, this perfect garden, beautiful fruit trees, there's animals, there's stars and galaxies and sun, and the first people, Adam and Eve, they walked with God harmoniously, perfect, without sin. It was good. God a good God created a good world. Right away, right away something changed all that. We call it the fall. The fall of mankind. Chapter 3 introduces us to that. We learn how sin destroys God's good world. Sin destroys order. It destroys our relationship with Him and with each other. And with the sin of Adam and Eve. And it was one 
sin. God gave Adam and Eve, the first people, this garden to take care of it. You can do anything you want with this garden. Take care of one another, love one another. But there's one thing you must not do. Please do not eat from this tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I remember when I was in, I was in Spain. I was there for, why was I in Spain? Just wandering around. Why was I in Spain? Oh, I was there traveling Europe with my friend. I was in Spain, and I wanted to see this soccer field where my favorite soccer team plays. They're called Real Madrid. They're, they're, they're based in, in Madrid. And the, the stadium is called the Bernabeu. So growing up, I watched my favorite athletes, my favorite soccer players play on the Bernabeu. And I got to go to the stadium. And you'd go to just the benches. So the benches in which they sit on were like race car seats. And they were heated. And I was like, Wow. But then there's the soccer field, lush, perfect grass, like my lawn in the summer. If you ever come to my house, you're like, that looks like the Bernabeu. I was like, I know. And I'm in the Bernabeu, and I'm looking at this grass. I'm like, David Beckham played on this. My favorite player, Zinedine Zidane, touched that grass. Not literally, because it dies, and that's how grass works. But it says, do not touch. You have a sign like that, do not touch. What do you do? And maybe you're somebody who's like, I obey every law and I am not touching that grass. It says, do not touch. I'm like, I am. I didn't want to. Well, I wanted to. And now I'm, I'm in this kind of this tension. Do not touch. I just step on it. And this security guard is like, hi. And then I ran away. But God says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of this fruit. Do not do it. Because if you do, you will die. There is no clearer condemnation, judgment, law than that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. And, and they ate it. And the only punishment for disobeying God is not, hey, you get to try that again. It's punishable by eternal death. We get that from a book called Romans, chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Their rebellion, their crime against God was considered high treason. It was a treacherous act deserving eternal death. And they were punished by God. They, as we'll read, were cast from the garden. So we read in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 1. How did this happen? How did this woman and man disobey the only rule? There's only one rule. We read, one day, there's a serpent. It asked the woman, did God really, did God really say you must not eat from, the, from any of the trees in the garden? Did God, God really say you can't eat from any tree? So here, the serpent is slick. He's deliberately misquoting God. God said, don't eat from this particular tree in the center of the garden. The snake says, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Eve responds, verse 2, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's the only fruit 
It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The serpent not only contradicts God directly, but he shows this fruit from this tree as something good, something worth obtaining. By eating it, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. But the crazy thing is they already are like God. They're made in the image of God. Sin is like that. It's tempting. It looks good. It looks good at first. But it will take you where you don't want to go. It's just a taste. It's just one night. It's just one drink. It's just one puff. Just, just one time. We continue in verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But God put Adam in charge of the garden. Adam was put in charge of the garden. Adam failed. Don't get me wrong. Eve also sinned. But Adam was responsible for the garden. And the whole order of the garden has crumbled. There's a professor of the Old Testament. His name's Kenneth Matthews. He says, The woman listens to the serpent. The man listens to the woman. And no one listens to God. The order is totally destroyed. God's good design and his good order has now been destroyed. Adam and Eve were supposed to take care of the garden and the animals in it and the trees in it, including that sneaky, snaky, shysty, shifty serpent. <laughs> By obeying the serpent, they betrayed the trust that God placed with them. This is not just an act of disobedience. It's, it's not just like me touching the Bernabeo's grass, which was awesome, by the way. Follow the signs. Don't disobey signs. It's good. There's reasons for signs. It wasn't just an act of disobedience. This very moment in history, when they ate that fruit, is an act of treachery, disloyalty, treason, and it condemned us all. Sin will fascinate you, but then it will assassinate you. There is no good root staying in, harboring, living in, thinking about, doing sin. Sin will fascinate you, but then it will assassinate you. And sin entered the world and brought shame and guilt. Innocence was lost. Paradise was lost. 
verse 8, we pick it up. They hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So God is confronting Adam. Adam, I put you in charge of the garden. I told you not to eat it. And you did. And what does Adam do? He blames his wife. That's not a good idea ever. (laughs) Ever. Even if she did do it. You take the blame. That's marriage lesson the first. And then God talks to the wife. What have you done? She blames the serpent. It's the old blame game. Who's played that game? All of us, if you're honest. Yeah, I play it every day. Even if something goes wrong and Caitlin's not there, it's like, Caitlin! It's just like a reaction. Anyways, we're working on that. It's the old blame game. Our world loves to give us excuses, to give us an out for our sin. We give ourselves excuses. My addiction made me do it. Somebody told me that. They stole thousands of dollars. Thousands. On a regular basis, we learned for the last few months. What did they say to us? My addictions made me do it. My alcoholism made me do it. I was reading an article recently, and this pastor of a church in the States blamed these demons in this young girl as the reason for why he tried to sexually assault her. This wasn't me. This was, this was the demons within you. I, I would never do that. Saying we were victims all the time, which is so prevalent, so prevalent everywhere, in the Yukon, around the world. By saying we're victims, that's one of the biggest lies of our age because it passes the blame. We no longer have to take responsibility for what we do. My wife made me do it. The serpent made me do it. Those demons made me do it. Video games made me do it. Casting the blame. And sin enters the world. And what does God do? He already said, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Not right away physically, but spiritually, you will die. (coughs) And God brings curses. Verse 14, God curses the snake. Verse 15, there's now going to be hostility between husband and wife and their kids. You see that every day. Families breaking up, domestic violence, hostility in the home. God continues, verse 15, the serpent will be crushed. God makes this promise. There's going to come someone. He will strike your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. Remember that. Remember this verse. Genesis 1, 15. 
He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. We're going to come back to that. The curses continue. The judgment continues. Verse 16. There's going to be pain in childbirth. The reason you have pain during childbirth, which I know nothing about personally, but I've seen it three times to be like, hey, that does not look like it feels good. (laughs) You can thank Eve and Adam for that. Women are going to want to rule over the husband. Verse 16, but the husband will rule and dominate his wife in a horrible way. Verse 17, you're going to struggle to get food from the land. You're going to struggle to get money and work because the ground will be cursed. You're going to have to labor and sweat and toil as you make a living. All these things that happen that we experience is from this very moment. And God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. But chapter 3 closes with God graciously covering Adam and Eve's nakedness. He takes an animal, kills the animal, and the skin covers their nakedness. It seems like a weird thing to do. But as God did that, he would paint a picture of what he would do thousands of years later as the perfect lamb would be slain to take away our sin. God killed an animal to cover Adam and Eve's sin. And for generations and generations and generations after that, the payment for sin would require an animal sacrifice. Every year, sometimes every day, every week, every month, you would have to sacrifice an animal in the temple to pay for your sin. And you would have to do that over and over and over again. Until one day, 2,000 years ago, this obscure man from an obscure town shows up And we read about him, somebody talking about him in a book called John, chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the payment for our sin. He is the animal, lamb, perfect sacrifice for our sin. And our sins can be forgiven by putting our faith in what he has done. We'll talk a little bit about that more later. We're going to continue with Adam and Eve and their offspring. As they're kicked out of the garden, they're kicked out of the garden, and it's not life as God intended, but it is now spiritual death. They're in their sin and they will have hell to pay for it. They're alienated from God. They're alienated from one another. Their sin, Adam's sin specifically, because he was responsible, Adam's sin cannot be overemphasized. This is the fall of humanity. This is the beginning of every kind of sin in our life. Every kind of suffering and pain, physical and spiritual. This brought death. The reason we die is because of this moment. And now they're outside of the garden, not like life is supposed to be. Chapter 4, it says, 
Adam and Eve have some kids. They have two children. They have a son, Cain. They have a, another son, Abel. We're going to learn about this man, Lamech, in chapter 4. And then we're going to learn about a third descendant named Seth. So Adam and Eve, they have Cain and Abel. Cain, he grows up to be a farmer. Abel grows up to be a shepherd. Picking up in verse 3 in chapter 4, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the, to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Cain did not give God his best. He gave God what was convenient. This is something we can do as well. We can just give God our extra time, our spare time, but not our best. God did not accept Cain's gift because of Cain's heart attitude towards the gift. He didn't accept Cain's gift because of his motivation. He just gave him the extras. And Cain was angry. He was angry at his brother. He's angry at God. And he murders his brother, Abel. This is the first murder. We pick it up in verse 6. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin. Hear this. Everybody here at the Northern Collective. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, hey, let's go into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, verse 15, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is just the story, the descendants of Adam and Eve, of how sin continues to destroy humanity. Anger is now entered. And murder and jealousy. Cain and Abel are products of that. Sin continues to destroy humanity. And we hear more descendants. Cain and his wife have a son named Enoch. Cain founds a city and names it after his son Enoch in verse 18. And four generations later, 
So Cain's great, great, great grandson. So three greats. Cain's great, great, great grandson. Lamech is born. L-A-M-E-C-H is born. Verses 19 to 22, we read that Lamech marries two women, Ada and Zillah. And they had three sons and a daughter. But Lamech was far beyond the ideal husband or the ideal man. And sin continues to corrupt humanity. And Lamech brags to his wives in his evil, weird song poem thing. We read in verse 23, he says to his wives, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. He's just boasting that he's more evil than his forefather Cain. And sin continues to corrupt humanity and bring death. Cain, Abel, generations after generation, Lamech. So the question we must ask as we read this story, who will end the cycle of sin? Who will strike the serpent's head? Let's rewind. Genesis 1, chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 15. What does it say? I ask you all to remember that. He will do what? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God was making a promise. I'm going to bring an end to this. I'm going to bring an end to this evil. I'm going to bring an end to sin. I'm going to kill that serpent. I'm going to strike its head and you will strike its heel. So who's going to end the cycle of sin? Who will strike the serpent's head? It's going to be through Adam and Eve's third child. They have a third child named Seth. We read about that in verse 25. Adam and Eve have a third son. God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. When Seth grew up, he had a son named Enosh. And at that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. The rest of Genesis, if you were to read it from start to finish, the rest of Genesis will trace this single line from Seth's descendants. So Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, there's going to be a lineage that Genesis will continue to trace through the entire book. That the serpent crusher, the serpent killer, that this future king will come through this descendant. This king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This king is King Jesus. The entire lineage, the entire story of who is going to kill the serpent follow through this line, this lineage. Ultimate leads to the perfect lamb who was slain. And we read about it. We know what happens. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. It says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Adam's one sin sin brings condemnation for everyone, all of us. But Christ's one act of righteousness, his one act of perfect obedience to God, brings a right relationship with God. It wasn't just one moment. Christ lived a perfect life from baby to death. 
that Christ's act, one act of righteousness, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Sin entered the world through Adam. And this writer of this book says there's a second Adam, Christ. Christ will take your sins upon himself. We read this in 2 Corinthians verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Sin entered through Adam. Christ defeats it. He defeats the serpent. He is of the lineage of Seth. He is going to forgive our sins. He's going to take away the power of sin in your life. He's going to take away the penalty of sin in your life. He's going to take away the presence ultimately when we're with Him in heaven. We get that. We enter into glory with Christ by faith alone. You do not have to work and earn to get it. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf. Not what we can do, what we can add to it. We are not doing God any favors by giving ourselves to Him. Jesus Christ has paid it all. I have become sin. And I will forgive your sin. By faith alone. By faith alone. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God came down as a man. God paid the penalty for you and I. And he offers forgiveness to all. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you think about. He's going to give you a new nature, a new heart, and a new mind that says yes to Jesus. That desires to read this book. That prays because we want to talk and commune with our Father. He changes you. The desires that you formerly had, you no longer have. It's not that you don't struggle on a day-to-day basis. But, as John Piper says, sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. The reason we sin, dear Christian, is because we are not satisfied with God. When the serpent first lied to Eve, did God really say that? Did God give you enough? Maybe I should just run away with that woman. Maybe I should just leave my wife. Maybe I should just buy that thing. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. So we must check our satisfaction with God. Do we know Him? Do we know God? Do we know Him through reading and applying His Word into our lives? Are you satisfied with God for all that He is for you and all that He's done? Because if you're not, you will go to every shiny thing and take a hold of it. And once you take a hold of it, it takes a hold of you. There's a song that I hear on the radio sometimes. It goes a little something like this. You don't drink from the bottle. The bottle drinks from you. Sin will take you where you do not want to go. But God says, I forgive you. I love you. 
come to me. Martin Luther, an old dead Christian writer who I believe is in heaven, he said this, don't listen to your sin. He says, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. Jesus says, come, all you are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will forgive you and give you rest and it will transform you. Let's do that together in community. Let's hold this book in high regard because this book speaks of an awesome Savior who forgives us, who forgives us and transforms us. It's not that we'll be perfect once we become a Christian. But our desires are changed and we find our satisfaction in God. Would we rest knowing what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me? And would that transform our city, our territory, and our world? Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you teach us that sin is insane? And we would just flee from it. And we'd run to you, run to your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. Would you humble us, Father, deeply that we would rely on your finished work and not what we can do, not what we can offer, but what you've already done. Thank you for loving us first. Open our hearts and our minds to adore you and treasure you and be satisfied in you above everything for your glory alone and for our joy. Amen.